Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. For August 23rd, 2020, I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yeah, good to have you all on. In about 20 minutes, we're going to have Chris Leon check on the show for the second time, uh, uncrewed on Twitter. Uh, people follow them there, and that's when we're actually going to have our discussion of the convention. So don't think we we didn't just like not watch. We didn't watch some you know reruns on Netflix. Uh, we all are versed on what happened last week and what may happen next week. Uh, I guess as much as anybody else. But before Chris comes on, we're going to talk about a subject we've been wanting to get to for at least a week now but wanted to do it justice, and that is the situation not only with mail-in voting, but also really just the U.S. mail because uh, one leads into the other, and that's what makes this thing so tragic that it's not just, you know, what will happen with ballots when um, absentee voting starts. What's happening with the U.S. mail right now? Um, Catherine, I'm sure you've read the stories. You've seen the pictures of the the blue uh, postal boxes. Uh, what's your thought first on just the U.S. mail situation? Well, I think it's pretty outrageous the way um, it's been framed. Uh, they keep talking about how it's losing money, and I guess I just look at it differently. Um, I think that it just costs money to have a successful uh, postal service for a country is expensive. And the idea that it should break even or make money, and well, plus we have the whole, I don't know if we're going to get into the whole pension problem that they have, but, um, you know, I've, I've been in jobs where I've shipped things in all various, uh, using various services. And there's no competition for the cost and performance of the postal service for, you know, whatever it is, 60 cents now. You can get a letter, I mean, in, when it's functioning and it has, you know, across the country in a couple of days. To do that with FedEx or UPS or whatever service, we're looking at like 13 or $14. So it's really not something that we can compare that, you know, they're private companies versus a semi, you know, public company or public organization. And most countries have their own postal service and they, it it costs money. It's not that it loses money. It's just that it costs money. So I just think it's a weird frame that they put on it. And um, plus it's a, a huge employer uh, a lot of people have been pulled out of poverty by working at the postal service, uh, at, you know, making, uh, you know, good, solid middle-class wages and by purchasing homes and 
you know, participating uh, fully in the economy. So I th- just think it's very short-sighted to look at it uh, as an expense instead of a investment, I guess. Well, I guess this goes back to Grover Norquist and the I'm gonna we're gonna shrink government until we can drown it in the bathtub. Now you couldn't drown the U.S. Postal Service in the bathtub, but that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to oh, it's got to be just like a business. If it's no good, uh, it doesn't you know make a this huge you know million dollar profit. It's not a, a valuable entity. Tim, I think I remember a movie. Uh, that Kevin Costner was in back in the 90s called The Postman. I don't think that movie got very good reviews, but the actual um, point of that movie was very valid. Uh, It was a post-apocalyptical situation where everything had broken down in society, and Kevin Costner went across the country, and he started to see – he found like a bag of mail, and he used it, and he delivered the mail. And they started delivering more and more mail that had been piled up, and they started getting new mail. And it kind of rebuilt American society somewhere in the future. And it kind of showed how much postal communication matters, uh, even in this fictional story. Um, isn't that kind of a larger point as far as the postal system goes? I will agree with you, David. The movie was terrible. <laughs> but the point was good, wasn't it? No, 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 no. I'm, 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 uh, yeah, I, I understand the point. And, uh, y- you know, Kat- Catherine m- mentioned the problem. It's a simple problem. It goes back to 2006 when the Congress passed, uh, um, you know, into law that the Postal Service had to fund the retirement system 75 years into the future, and they were fiscally sound up to that point, and then they just went in the tank right after that. I don't know why subsequent Congresses have not changed that, and that is the problem. That's the the basis of the problem. That's the only reason that Trump and these guys can even mess with the post office to start with, and they need to change that, and they need to change that right now. Yeah, it shouldn't be beholden that? to political whims. I mean, it should function uh, much well, like the, other the, government yeah, services but, but the problem you have there is that the law states that the Congress of the United States will oversee the Postal Service, even though the Postal Service operates on its own, makes its own money, doesn't require any taxpayer money for the day-to-day running of the post office. Still, the Congress, you know, is going to oversee it. And uh, somebody should tell Trump that, right? Yes. Now, Catherine, Donald Trump's kind of had it out for the postal system before the issue of, uh, you know, mail-in ballots came up with the pandemic. Um, Because they... Uh, deliver packages for Amazon, and particularly on Sundays. And he has such a bone to pick with Jeff Bezos. He's already did, you know, didn't like the post office. So if you had to do a fifty-fifty split, and I know there could be other reasons, you know, maybe a mailman made him cry when he was little or something. But if it was a fifty-fifty thing, how much is his disdain for Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and how much is it? Worrying about mail-in ballots. I think they feed off each other. 
I think, you know, he he started out with a disdain and then when he decided, when he learned more about mail-in ballots, that just, like, made, made it worse. But I want to I want to make one I want to point out one more thing that doesn't get talked about very often. It's it's also that the the um, postal service is a legal um, function too. You know when you like things need to certain documents official documents have to go through the postal service. You can't send some things by FedEx. They need they have to go through the postal service. So I think that's the other piece of this that it's a, a an it serves as an it serves an official purpose as well. So I just think that this is very short sighted. But I you know I think as far as the president goes, he will you know go after whatever he'll go after for whatever reason he he has without revealing it. So it could be Bezos. It could be like you said some postal man, postman was mean to him or something, or it could be the, or it's just a combination of all the, all the things. So. Catherine, speaking of combinations, I do have to fact check you. You used a proper noun and a verb that never happened together, and that would be Trump learned. So, you know, check that <laughs> next time. No Trump learned. I, I don't know if you know that. I stumbled on that, like trying to, you know. No, just a joke. Uh, you know, even those like um, one one cell organisms that learn when the a light hits them and they go the other direction. Even they learn. So, you know, we'll give him that much credit. Um, so, in all seriousness, let's just talk about. I'm gonna stay on the mail side, and then we're gonna flip over. People aren't getting their pension checks. People aren't getting things they ordered. I'll go and tell you, I ordered um, some, I have to wear them every day teaching, and I ordered some, you know, coverings that are more comfortable. I have one of them, and I need about five, so I don't have to wash it out every day. And so I ordered a four-pack on Amazon, and it has been slow, slow delivery, and it appears it's not, you know, the, the order was fulfilled pretty quickly. And so, you know, need items are getting held up. Um, Tim, what's going to be the political implications of just simply holding the mail up? I mean, how many people, in particular older voters who probably put more value on the physical mail than a lot of younger voters, is he going to lose or tick off with this move? You know, you know, David, uh, I have thought and thought and thought and thought and thought and thought all through his presidency. Aha, he has finally gone over the edge. And people are going to see him for what he is, and that's going to be that, and that's going to be the end of Donald Trump. And I'm going to say it's not really going to change that much of anything. His supporters are going to blame it on anything except for him, and everybody else is going to know better. Let's just hope that everybody else is over 50% of the voters and go to vote. That, that is what we hope now. Well, I hate to put I, it so bluntly, but that's the truth. It's not going to move many needles. It just seems to me, and frustratingly so, that nothing at this point seems to move many needles with this guy. His uh, approval rating never drops below a certain point. His approval rating never rises above a certain point. Certain people just never abandon him, no matter what. And 
you know, let's just hope enough people are against him no matter what. But I will tell you this. We've seen those polls that shows that he's not doing as well with senior voters as, yes. uh, as he was in 2016. And that was based on the COVID. Now, perhaps this hardened those people into anti-Trump voters. Let's hope so. Yeah, because I think older voters, they show up, and that's the one uh, group you don't want to lose and you do want to gain. Uh, a new Ipsos ABC poll showed his disapproval rating up to 60 and his um, approval rating up to 39. I'm trying to find the exact tweet I saw earlier tonight. Um, 39 and 60, those are terrible numbers. Catherine, same questions. What do you think will be the political you know, direct ballot box implication of how voters react to this and vote on this. Well, I think Tim's right. You know, it doesn't seem that anything really, you know, moves the bar for his supporters. But I do think that um, senior voters who might be on the fence or, I mean, not not really undecided, but, yeah, undecided, these are the kinds of things that, We'll set them off, the COVID and the Postal Service. And you're absolutely right about pension checks. Apparently, um, a lot of people, including myself, get their um, prescriptions through the mail, and um, that those are being slowed, slowed down. I, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that we don't really think about in the on the industrial side. You know, like apparently little um, baby chicks get mail sent through the Male. There's actually 526 hmm. species of animals that can be sent through the U.S. Postal Service, including a variety of birds and reptiles. And hmm. uh, apparently, that's um, those are being held up, and that's affecting farms who are shipping out chicks to their customers, and they're not getting there in time, and they're dying. So there's a lot of um, industrial things that we don't really, or, you know, agricultural and industrial things that we don't really think about so much. Plus all the billing and invoicing and uh, payments that go out from uh, both small and large companies, banks, all those kind of things that use the Postal Service for a lot of their, uh, you know, communication with their customers. Yes, most definitely. So, yeah. now. Let's flip over to the other side of this. You know, maybe he's got a beef with Jeff Bezos. Uh, maybe he just doesn't like any kind of government service. But at the end of the day, this seemed to intensify when we talked about mail-in voting. And not necessarily states like Oregon and Washington that already have a non-mail system to do this um, in a lot of communities. But, you know, we saw in Georgia there was more, a push to do more mail-in voting for the primary Um now in the general, just this weekend, my wife and I got the notices that we could get absentee ballots, and I was kind of, I did, and my wife some way, I just don't trust this. I'd really go in person because, you know, this election is just too important. Um, Tim, how effective will this be, and where will it be the most effective in actually manipulating the vote count, if at all? Well, in my county, I I don't think it will manipulate much of anything. 
I can early vote comfortably, easily. So I can either early vote or, or do anything I want to do. Stacey Abrams said it best. Vote as early as you can, and then any slowdown in the mail will not affect you. That being said, obviously, any tampering with the mail and with mail-in voting is going to affect uh, the biggest population centers first. You're talking about places where they may have to close polls down because they don't have enough poll workers, right? We've already seen that in primaries. We've talked about that on on this show, like in the city of Louisville when they had one polling place open for the whole city in the Kentucky primary. Um, It'll certainly affect those places because you're talking about neighborhood polling places where people have walked to vote who do not have transportation otherwise, and therefore they will need to turn to mail-in voting. Well, what if they don't trust it, uh, and what if they believe the stories they hear, and they say, you know what, there's just no reason to vote because my vote probably isn't going to count anyway. Ding, dong, ding, dong, Donald Trump wins, right? If that becomes their action. Now, of course, it wasn't just Stacey Abram. It was both Obama, Hillary Clinton, and others that said, yep. you know, vote, was in, vote early in person during the convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, because um, that was a constant theme, and we'll get to that. Um, but I do think you mentioned Louisville. Now, from my understanding is they had that big convention center there, um, and they actually got more people voting in that big convention center. And I know that not only that the Atlanta Hawks uh, with State Farm Arena were the first team to volunteer their arena, and now a lot of NFL teams are volunteering the stadiums. Um, arena, the other teams are, are doing the that. arenas. So that maybe that the big cities have been better than the smaller cities that, that ain't maybe the problem, have big baby. sports franchises. That ain't the problem. Getting the people to, to the sites to vote will be the problem because we're talking about a lot of people that just don't have any way of getting around yeah. somewhere like well, that. Well, once or, again, if your arena is on a rapid transit line and you live near public transportation, that becomes – and some places the arena is and some isn't. I just have that Atlanta frame where both sports arenas that are in question are right there on MARTA. Catherine? Mm-hmm. Right there on MARTA, but that costs money. Or you have to park, and that costs money. So that, right. in essence, becomes a full tax. Yeah. Well, right. and, and I don't think, whereas, I don't think Brad Raffensperger should say this is a solution. This is the Atlanta Hawks saying that what Brad Raffensperger is doing is a problem, and they're trying to alleviate it and fix it. Um, the, the, you know, you have a bat. Once again, the NBA is fixing problems that the Republican government can't handle, just like with the testing. They and Yale University developed a, a – a saliva test in the tongue that that is easier to um, get results back. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears because right now we've got our guest on the show. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, uh, Chris Leoncheck. Hey, how are y'all doing? Oh, good to have you back. And um, we saved it for you. Um, we know you probably watched the Democratic convention. You've probably heard about what's going on in the Republican convention. We're going to have a little conversation around those to, uh, to be the core of the conversation so let's kind of get off first with your thoughts and i'll let Catherine and, and tim give their thoughts as well um what did you uh, think overall of the first virtual convention i think they had a really tough job to do of course being all virtual and all that but 
I think they hit it out of the park, especially with the Joe Biden convention, the acceptance speech, the roll call vote, the Obama speech. I think like being in a certain location gives a speech more, you know, gravitas or to the situation. And they really exemplified that in all four nights of the convention. Yeah, it was kind of like there were four four places. You had um, Los Angeles and just a sound studio where you had that night's host. And that kind of did have a PBS telethon feel, uh, no matter which one of the um, four hosts it was. Then you had um, Congressman Thompson in Jackson, Mississippi, and that – location looked really small that looked like uh it was very tiny and uncomfortable you had a place in milwaukee in which tom perez and a few others emanated from and of course you had wilmington delaware where both uh not only joe biden but also kamala harris and i think chris coons and a few others spoke for spoke from as well you had all four venues um which one of those four venues do you think worked the best and maybe the worst i think the uh the wilmington the riverfront where Harris and Biden delivered their speech really, you know, was probably the best out of all four of them, especially after night four. And you saw Biden and his wife meet with Kamala and her husband, the big fireworks celebration. It really added to the, you know, celebratory mood. There weren't any balloons, but there were fireworks. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> after the worst, I think some of the locations, like Chuck Schumer spoke in front of the uh, Statue of Liberty, and it was like a little smudge in the background you could see. I'd say, yeah, that was probably the worst. More focus on the camera than anything else, though. Yeah, and and that would have been better in day. That should have been a a taped speech, and I think it would have been more effective because you would have the daytime uh, background instead of live. And I just, wherever they taped uh, poor Congressman Thompson and Jackson, it was just so close. Well, I'm going to pass it to Tim quickly. It's going to come back around to me, uh, given this format. Um, Tim's going to, he can give his thoughts and then he can add any questions for you. Tim? Yeah, well, I, I was really glad that they they pulled it off. That you know, it could have it could have been gone downhill really fast, and I thought under the circumstances they did a great job. The question I want to ask you, Chris, is who delivered the best speech on those four nights, and why? Uh, it, that's a hard one, honestly. There are all so many good speeches. I think it has to be a tie between Barack Obama on night three and Joe Biden on night four. Barack Obama. Yeah gave essentially a wake-up call to America, you know, if anyone hasn't woken up already by this point. He was like, you know, don't mess up again. You've seen what has happened when you did mess up the first time around, and don't don't do that again. And with Joe Biden, he gave a, a very good speech on not, like, on why he should be elected president. You know, some people decry Biden as like, oh, he's just on the ballot, so he's like just the not Trump choice. I think Mm -hmm. Biden did a really good job at proving why you should vote for him other than him not being Trump. Mm -hmm. That's that's a 
Good thought right there with that. I'm going to send it right over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, Chris. Thanks for being on tonight. We, we were, we've been looking forward to talking with you. Um, I wondered what you thought. There's been a lot of chatter, of course, that um, they didn't talk enough about policy on the, in the convention. I didn't feel that way. I watched it gavel to gavel, and I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of what the vis- what his vision was and some of the, you know, basic plans were. But do you think that he- they did a good enough job of delivering on, you know, what they're actually going to do rather than who they are? I think they did a pretty decent job of explaining their policy position and platforms. Like healthcare was a big one. All the roundtables that uh, were interspersed throughout the speeches with Biden and you know, labor workers and people affected by COVID and other stuff. I think they did a pretty good job of explaining his platform, what he wants to do for the country. Uh, night two, when they had Addie Barkin there and he gave his speech about health care, I think that really set the tone for I, I policy. Agree. I, I, just want, I just wanted to, I, I needed sort of a reality check because I, they were talking about it on the news shows this morning. Of course, you know, they're, they're, they've got to find something. And the, yeah, the yeah. other thing, I, I love the um, roll call. I thought it was fantastic. And I, I, I want to figure out a way to lobby them to do it that way forever. I thought it was mm-hmm. such a great way of getting a better visual of all our states. And I, I, I was really moved by it. I mean, it, it really brought me to tears. Did you think that was a good thing, and do you think they could do that in the future? Yeah, the roll call is really one of the best parts of the night, I'd say. Uh, Just seeing all these amazing locations throughout the country and seeing America's diverse and diverse population, seeing all these uh, people who are affected by what's going on in the country right now deliver these delegates and the, you know, kind of like, why is our state so good speech? Uh, the only one that I didn't really get was Rhode Island with the yeah, guy with the calamari. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, it was really good. Through, yeah. Well, thank you. I, it may come back around, but I'm going to pass it to David now. Thanks a lot. Catherine, it will come back around. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. When we were all, I think, uh, texting each other while that roll call was going on, and I made some kind of snarky comment immediately about, like, the the restaurant reviewers from Rhode Island. Um, it was so strange. Um, DoorDash. Well, and I think it will be interesting, and we'll get to the Republicans in a little bit, is will they do the exact same thing, which would make a lot of sense, uh, but then – Will they make states look different? Because their view of you name the state may be different than the Democrats' view. I think in your state, you know, hey, I don't know if they were in Chicago, but they might have been on the Chicago River down in uh, smack dab in the middle of where the AL runs, whereas the Republicans may be in Peoria. Yeah, uh, I think Illinois was. Carol Mosley Braun at the old state capitol in Springfield, but okay. I can see uh, I don't re- like il- being an Illinois Republican nowadays is a dying breed. Let's just say that. So it's going to be interesting to see if they'll do something like the Democrats, and I don't know where they would do it 
for Illinois. It's some a, like a farm maybe in downstate. It's just so hard to think of. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they both, if they end up choosing that same format, how they both view their state. I mean, some places like, you know, Montana was out on a ranch, and the Republicans will be on a ranch too because, you know, that's just um, what, you know, Montana is in like one of the um, Pacific Island territories. I mean, it's probably going to look very similar. Um, Well, Talking about, and I think you're right. I, I think I used the term "peak Biden." We got peak Biden with that speech. Um, I also think, even though it was very short, uh, Bill Clinton had the line of the night when he, or maybe the line of the convention when he said, "You know, if you want somebody that that um, watches TV and then tweets about it, he's your man." Um, and that was actually uh, Political Wire's quote of the day the next day. Um, which just shows how masterful a speaker and communicator he is, even with five minutes in his living room. Um, I want to add, I thought the saddest thing of the convention, and it really uh, saddened me, was the Carters, they did not show them. They had them speaking over the video, and I think that was a reminder that um, just what we did went through with John Lewis. Um, Georgia may be going through with that, unfortunately, sooner than we'd like with uh, First Lady and President Carter. Um, the fact that I don't think they could even, you know, visually show them given their age and, you know, the fragility of this um, pandemic, they may have had to uh, record it even without video, um, somebody being there. So I, that kind of saddened me, I thought, because it just created a reminder. Well, let's move over to the Republican convention. We, we've got the lineup. It's a who is who of who. Um, cause I looked at this, this, uh, lineup and I mean, I follow some politics and there were people I'm like, who is that? Um, and of course there's lots of Trumps. Um, what is your thoughts on this lineup that you've seen so far? The list of RNC speakers. It's, uh, to put it bluntly, it's very cursed to say the least, um, some of some of them I will I will give them credit. Like one or two are okay. Like I think the Florida lieutenant governor is speaking. She's been pretty good. But after a while you just get to like, oh, the Covington Catholic kids speaking. Oh, the two the couple who pointed their guns at the Black Lives Matter protesters are speaking. Oh, every single Trump is speaking. Like it just like goes from like a middle of the road to like rock bottom really fast. Yeah, and I think there's a theme there. If you look about the speakers that the Democrats had that were regular folks, you had the health care activist that has ALS, and it was about him trying to get more people health care coverage. You had the uh, young man from New Hampshire that stuttered and how Joe Biden helped him. And that was – it wasn't about me, 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 whereas the people from St. Louis – we pulled out guns to protect our property. You know, that's their theme. Uh, the kid, I, the, the media got it wrong about me and the Native American on my trip to D.C., me, me, me. And so it's a very different look how they're going to use the average people, if you will. Um, you know, the speakers, they do have some people that are kind of, I guess, you know, reflect some future, reflect, you know, some diversity. You have Tim Scott and Nikki Haley on the first night. You got Dan Crenshaw later on. But I noticed, and I really wish there was an alphabetical list because I'm going to, it's going to be like a word search and I've missed it. 
But it doesn't appear they have a lot of these Republican governors. You're missing the Ron DeSantis's and the Brian Kemp's and the Greg Abbott's that have been the face of the um, pandemic fight in a state-by-state basis. Do you think that was on purpose, or do you think they just would rather have some of these other folks than these red state, large state governors? It could be. Well, you know as well as anyone else, Brian Kemp, how bad he's been handling covid we that think state. that, though, but the Republicans think that. Yeah, I, I don't know if you want to, like, put unpopular in the view of other states' governors in the national spotlight. That might look poorly upon, you know, Trump, if that's even possible in that situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I blame Donald Trump more than I do Brian Kemp. I think Brian yeah. Kemp's got his cueing from the White House. I think if the White House had different cueing, he would have different response. Now, it's his job to handle Georgia, and I think the same thing from Ron DeSantis. I think he's gotten his cueing. I think Greg Abbott's shown a little more leadership than the two of them, and that was really the one that was glaring to me was you didn't have uh, Greg Abbott because he, he, he at least has a good personal story, and the Republicans, I think, a lot of times struggle with that personal story. Um, one more little point, and then I'm going to pass it on to Tim for, for questions about this side. I noticed that the Pences are both speaking on Wednesday night, and I'm like, man, we're not going to get the apprentice style, you're fired, Mike, um, like I was thinking we might. I mean, not that I would like the replacement any better, but I just kind of thought, man, if Trump's got a big move to make, it's going to the you're fired, firing Kemp, throwing him under the bus, and picking, you know, Christy Nome or something. Um, but Tim, your thoughts on and questions for the Republican on the Republican convention for Chris? Um, yeah, Chris. Um, I mean, we go back to 1996. Bob Dole still alive. Then 2000, we had Bush. 2004, we had Bush. A uh, lot of people in the family of John McCain are still with us from 2008. Mitt Romney's still there. None of those people are invited to speak at the convention, and they represent the what Trump calls the past or the establishment of the Republican Party. So is Trump actually playing uh, this thing, this convention, toward targeting his base only to get them fired up? Oh, definitely, yeah. This, If you just look at the list of speakers, it is a – secure the base, hype up the base move. It also goes mm-hmm. to show, I think, how many bridges Trump has burned within the Republican Party. That not even Bush will, George W. Bush will speak for him. Of course, Mitt Romney won't speak for him because, you know, he voted to impeach him. But, yeah, none of these people who I'm looking at, aside from, like, I don't know, Tim Scott, maybe, or Elise Stefanik, I don't think can appeal to really anyone outside the base. Mm. Now, now he enters this convention according to 538's composite polling, a little over eight points uh, behind Joe Biden. And you see the list of speakers. You've pretty much seen the format of this convention this week. And so the question is, is there anything that Donald Trump can do with that to change that polling trajectory this week? 
Well, let's see. We're, what, two and about two and a half months away from Election Day. Uh, mm-hmm. First absentee ballots go out in, like, about a week or so in North Carolina. He is mm-hmm. rapidly running out of time to turn things around. And I, he's, not, he's thrown everything at the wall to try to get everything to stick. And this is just another one of the things he's trying to throw at the wall. It, it, nothing has stuck to Joe Biden. Sleepy Joe, creepy Joe, China Joe, nothing has stuck. And mm. I don't really think of anything that can stick to turn around, especially since, you know, there's not supposed to be a vaccine until after the election yeah. at the but, really is. So, yeah, I don't really think – and this convention so, isn't doing him any favors. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to send it to Catherine on that note then. Catherine? <laughs> so here, my my, um, my comment on, on the list of speakers for the Republicans versus the week we had is I feel like Joe Biden and the Democrats tend to look for people who are smart and experts you know, we had historians, scientists, former, um, former, you know, well thought of elected officials, and we don't have any one like that with the Republicans. They're all, you know, sycophants of Trump, and I just wonder if that, if anybody notices that. Maybe it's just me that notices that. And and one of the things, one of the reasons I have always voted for Democrats is I feel like they surround themselves with smart people more than Republicans do. That's changed a little bit over time. It's gotten worse over time, I think. But I just wonder if anybody will notice that these aren't experts in anything. They're just like fans, basically. Yeah, I agree with you on that point. I think people didn't really expect Trump to win in 2016, so they didn't think like uh, the he doesn't really surround himself with experts. I don't have to worry about that because, oh, he's not going to win. Nothing's going to happen after that. But then when he won, and now you see he's surrounding himself with, like, the my pillow guy and yeah. all those people. <laughs> perfect example. That guy is I think perfect Ameri- example. Yeah, I think Americans, I think, if you're looking at the poll numbers, I think they've realized the error of their ways, in a sense, to trust the experts. Hmm. Do we do we have any idea of how they're? I haven't really read that much about the Republicans aside from the speaker list. Are they? Do they have any um, plans to do any of the like? How, how are they handling the whole virtual thing? Or are they going to try to make it more like it's live? Like they haven't released. They haven't released like a whole list of locations, but I think all the Trumps are speaking from the Rose Garden. Pence is speaking from a national monument. The Rose Garden that doesn't have any roses anymore. Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) ironic. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it'll be dark as well. Yeah, it's going to be dark, and so even (laughs) if the Rose Garden was full of roses, it probably wouldn't show up that well. well, and I do see that Dana White is on the speaking agenda. I guess that's the commissioner of the UFC. So he's an expert at promoting cage fighting. 
Um, I would think they would have more possible Democratic fans, and they wouldn't want to alienate them. Um, but surprised at that. Catherine, let me ask you a question. Are you looking forward to um, one of the featured speakers um, right in the first night, uh, DeKalb State Senator Vernon Jones? Oh. Oh. Vernon. Oh, my God. It's not both. I can't believe oh, he's going to be on. Oh. Vernon. Oh. Yeah, I mean, somebody made the point um, today on Twitter. You know, you compare Vernon Jones and I guess the guy that switched parties, Jeff Van Drew, to um, John Kasich, Cindy McCain, um, Christine Todd Whitman, Meg Whitman, um, uh, was it uh, Susan Malinari? I mean, all these Republicans that at least have some gravitas compared to um, a guy that was a state senator that you know ran for everything else and you know lost half of those elections, and then this guy that switched parties that may go down in November. Um, it's not equal by any means. I'm shocked they didn't get Rob Lugovich to speak. Yeah, I mean they they could have. I mean, because he was on. He's one of those guys. It's real weird how some people get on the Apprentice and they tell the truth about that thing, and then some of them become, you know, kind of like sycophants. And he's definitely in the second camp. um, Yeah. As well. Well, um, one more question on this Republican convention, Chris, and that would be. There's also not a lot of the senators that are in tough races. Like Doug Jones spoke at the Democratic convention, and um, I'm sure – and I know they uh, had um, Sarah Gideon, who's running in Maine. She both said a short little speech and introduced a musical act uh, from Maine on the shores. And so they tried to highlight some of these Senate candidates in competitive races. I don't see Martha McSally. I don't see – Corey Gardner, and once again, I, I know I'll say I don't see, and then Tim will go, well, they're on Thursday night. You didn't look good. But I really don't see a lot of these Senate candidates in these tough races. Are they missing an opportunity here? Well, it kind of reminds me of I've, – I've read about this before. In 1996, when Bob Dole was trailing in the polls to Bill Clinton, they were like – to the Republican candidates, okay, you can cut base with him to save your behinds. After a while, I think that's what we might be seeing. The only Senate candidate in a tough race that I see on this list is Joni Ernst. And that's a that's an indictment, I think, of someone like uh, Steve Daines or Cory Gardner or not even Lindsey Graham is speaking. Like, I think that's the craziest part about it. These senators, I think, see the writing on the wall. They know that. Biden is up nationwide by a lot, and they do not want to go down in a wave like some of their colleagues did in 2018, looking at Dean Heller. But I think they want to keep their jobs after November, and this is a very tactical move from some of them. But will it pay off? I'd wager towards no. Yes, I mean, like right off, Marsha Blackburn. She ran last time, one in Tennessee. Uh, you know, you could easily replace her with, say, Martha McSally. Uh, Kelly and Conway is a political hack. You don't have your campaign manager speaking. You, you give that that candidate. There's two speeches right there that could be uh, switched out for Steve Daines and, you know, Cory Gardner, if you will, or Martha McSally. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask a question of all of you. Um, 
and I'll give mine first to kind of give you all more time to think. Which speech are you the most intrigued by? And that doesn't have to be, oh, I think this person will actually say something I find inspiring or agree with. It's just I find it intriguing. And the one I'm kind of intrigued with, I want to see what Melania Trump has to say. I don't think she can actually plagiarize again this time. Um, I think there's like a 2% chance she actually endorses Joe Biden. Um, that would be rich if that happened, like I said, but just enough to make it interesting. That's mine for the one speech I find intriguing. Um, Tim, which one do you find intriguing? Mike Pompeo, I believe, is speaking, if I'm not mistaken. And I, you know, most of the time they keep cabinet officials out of this political stuff. I would like to see what happens when a member of the cabinet gets <laughs> in front of the cameras in a national convention and, and, and what they would have to say of a partisan political nature. Yes. Uh, Catherine, which one you find it the most intriguing? Well, none of them are that intriguing to me. We can have one. I agree with you that I think it'll be interesting to see how, not just what Melania has to say, but sort of how she, how they're, how they behave together, because it's often so cold. And I just, it'll just, I think that'll be an interesting uh, speech. And uh, you know, will they hold hands? Will they? You know, I mean. There was so much warmth on the stage with um, Joe Biden and uh, Dr. Biden and Kamala and her husband. I wonder if if we'll see that same kind of warmth and, um, uh, you know, love uh, exhibited between the Trumps. Yes, um, and Chris, I, I'll let you have the last one on that since we didn't um, prep you on that question. Which one did you find to be the most intriguing? I'm going to be really interested to see Nikki Haley's speech. It's oh. kind of clear that she really wants to run for president in 2024, and I want to see how she's going to strike a balance between the Trump GOP and the suburbanite GOP that – is kind of kind of weary of him. I imagine it's not going to go that well, but it's going to be interesting to see if it's a train wreck or not. Yeah, and there are a handful of folks that are the future, if you will. I think she's one, Dan Crenshaw, Elise Stefanik, um, Tim Scott. I think those folks, you know, that because if the RNC could have gotten a hold of this convention list, every night would have had like, you know, picking up the pieces after Donald Trump, you know, who do we begin to feature? Um, you know, I'm also, I think uh, Tiffany Trump, they're actually letting her speak, which will be kind of like, huh, that's different. Although it may be kind of splashed in between with her and Eric since they're on the same night. Um, it kind of lets them know where they stand, that they're having to share a night as well, um, keeping them in check. And then I guess one final question, and I'll once again go first, kind of give you all some thinking time. Is a missed opportunity from the Democratic convention looking back because y'all mentioned, um, you know, Doug Kamala Harris's husband, and um, I've heard that people really like him. And when he was out in Iowa campaigning, that people thought he was just, you know, just a really entertaining guy that um, 
always was ready to defend her. We just had a great time at the fair uh, and really humanized the couple in a lot of ways and, and was a real plus. You know, he never spoke. He didn't introduce her as the speaker. It was a, a mix of her sister, her niece, and her stepdaughter, his daughter. Um, so unlike he was slighted there because you're always wanting to promote your kids and, and um, you know, anything they do, you – uh, feel positive, but they never really let him um, speak. They didn't do much on him, and I think there's a lot of upside if they highlight him in the future. Um, y'all can give y'all thoughts on that. At the same time, telling anywhere else you think might have been a missed opportunity with the Democratic convention. Who's first? Oh, that that would be good, Catherine. Well, Catherine, you sound ready. I'm going to let you be first. <laughs> okay, um, well, I think the missed opportunities was having all those Republicans on and not giving, you know, Lucy McBath, uh, you know, all the all the some other Democratic candidates, not giving them an opportunity to speak. That I think was a missed missed opportunity. Um, as far as uh, I think, um, I really liked the way they introduced um, Kamala Harris. I thought that it was really touching to see the stepchildren and her sister and all that. I thought that was a really um, nice introduction. So I, I guess I don't feel that that was a, really a missed opportunity to use her husband in a more um, out front way. But, um, and I'm sure we'll get to know him on the campaign trail and as things, you know, I'm sure there'll be interviews with him, with the two of them. So I think we have time learn to get to know him. Okay. Uh, Tim? You know, um, I believe that a missed opportunity was the, the, the way that they were placed uh, for their speeches. To me, the very best speech of the convention was on opening night. And uh, former First Lady Obama just just a marvelous, 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 marvelous speech. I wish that speech had been a little bit later in the convention, either on the next to last night or the last night of the convention, just to uh, maximize the viewership of it, because it was a magnificent speech. I know that's splitting hairs a little bit, but I couldn't find a whole lot wrong with that convention. But that one I would have liked to have seen changed. Okay, uh, Leon, I mean, Chris? I think that there were a bit too many keynote speakers at the beginning of the second night. There were like 18 of them, and they're all really emblematic of the party's future from everyone from Connor Lamb to Stacey Abrams. But I think that the structure of the speech, with it being cut together, obviously was due to the pandemic and all that. But I feel like you could cut that down to like 10 and maybe space out the other eight throughout other nights in like maybe like a digital segment or something like that. It's a small complaint, but I think that really goes to show how good the DNC was. That's my biggest complaint about the DNC. Yes. Well, it was definitely an interesting experience. It'll be uh, kind of interesting to see how the Republicans um, – Structure it. They got to see the Democrats, but then they thought they were going live longer than the Democrats, so that put them at a disadvantage. 
And now they go second. I bet they wish they had another week to plan after because if going second, theirs is um, worse or maybe the same, it's going to look worse because they got to go after the first one win. It's kind of like when you have to speak out in class and you volunteer to go first and it's pretty decent. It gets looked at even more kindly because you had the courage to go first and this wasn't courage because it's just the way the things go if you're out of power. Um, well, Chris, before you leave us, tell folks where they can read you. I know on social media, but anywhere else they can as well. Uh, y'all can reach me at twitter.com slash uncrewed, U-N-C-R-E-W-E-D. If you want if you want to support my work, you know, PayPal, you can PayPal me at chrisleonchick13 at gmail.com. Got to get that. Got to get that. Uh, got to get that plug in at the end. <laughs> okay. Well, Chris, stay safe up in Illinois, and uh, we may get you on either one side or the other of Election Day. All right. It was good talking to y'all. Good Thank having you, you on. Much. Thank you. Thank Chris. you, sir. Yes, Chris Leon, check. Uh, well, we've got um, a few more minutes, and this is a short one. We'll probably get into the longer topic as well, and. Martha McSally sent out the most, possibly most unusual fundraising plea I've ever seen. It says, if you'll fast and skip a meal and give the 5 or $10 to the McSally campaign, you can make a difference. Um, Catherine, I figure you're probably not skipping a meal for Martha McSally, but just the average Democratic candidate, not the one that you really, really love or the one running against the one you really, really loathe, but just the pedestrian candidate. Are you skipping meals to donate to the campaign? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I think that's kind of a um, – it seems so desperate. Like who came up with that idea? And and why did they let them run with it? It just seems like a kind of silly. I mean, usually fasting, when people fast as as protest or as activism, it's usually around much more um, serious human uh, suffering, right? So you'll you might have a fast around um, immigration or um, hunger, but to suggest fasting to support a political campaign seems uh, um, desperate. That's the only word I can think of. Tim, I think what they nixed was for just 60 cents a day, the cost of a cup of coffee, a cup of coffee you can save right. a little more than a Washington for six more years. I guess they nixed that one. Uh, Tim, are, are you fasting to send, um, you know, to stop that mean old Mark Kelly, um, if you will? Yeah, well, first of all, I bet Donald Trump's not giving up any of his big mats and sending any right. money out there. And uh, she actually wants people to skip a meal and send her the money. Why? Is she broke? Did the NRSC abandon her? I mean, the, the look look where this is leading. A and if they did, is she done in their eyes? I mean, uh, right now, the real clear politics uh, averages 
has uh, Mark Kelly up by around seven points. That's a lot in the Senate race in the state of Arizona where Democrats historically don't beat too many people by seven points. Uh, especially incumbent senators. So what is she saying here? It, I mean, was she trying to make a joke? If she did, boy, it's a really bad joke. But yeah, she actually joke. was asking, I mean, she gave the the figures five or ten bucks or whatever she said. I mean, that does, uh, Catherine's right, that reeks of a little bit of desperation. So I got to wonder if the uh, spending boys at the, Republican uh, senatorial committee have have uh, basically uh, cut her loose. What do you think, David? Yeah, I think that that's a sign that the fundraising is really, really bad. And that, and I understand, you know, you can come up with a fundraising pitch for a non-political campaign that really that works for. But not a political campaign because I guess we've been conditioned. You know, the, the Koch brothers fund everything for the Republicans. You know, you don't have to skip a meal because the Koch brothers will, uh, you know, take care of you on the Republican side. And so Martha McSally, she is just if she loses two campaigns in a row, the second one after she got appointed, um, th- th- that really does not say much about her political acumen and running. Well, guys, we got about three minutes. Let's see what we can do. Um, during the week, another Trump campaign official got arrested. This time, um, you know, populist uh, rabble riser um, Steve Bannon, who promoted the wall, he got arrested. Um, and it was in conjunction of trying to raise money for this wall. Tim, give us some more details. Well, have you seen what's happening on social media where they're saying Republican National Convention, if you're not indicted, you're not invited? I, I think that just <laughs> says that. it all right there. But uh, federal charges, uh, Bannon and three others arrested, federal charges that they defrauded contributors to the nonprofit Kill the Wall. He pleaded not guilty. He was released on a $5 million bond. So another scandal involving a member of Trump's inner circle. $25 million is what he's accused of swindling. He apparently used hundreds of thousands of dollars for, quote, personal expenses after claiming to contributors, a lot of them who were 5 and $10 folks around the country, that all the money would go to fund the wall. And, of course, Bannon's story uh, on the uh, uh, the podcast and the social media the next day, it was all a lie to stop the wall from being built. And Donald Trump, as usual, distanced himself from uh, from Steve Bannon by, well, you know, he worked early in the campaign and briefly at the White House, but he wasn't that important, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Rich Irony, he was arrested by um, some... Um, Investigators from the United States Postal Service. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, Catherine. You know, if we would have all skipped um, a supper and a dinner, we might get a Senate to Steve, and he could have put it in his pocket and bought him a, a haircut, a shave, and an unwrinkled shirt at TJ Maxx. I was thinking the same thing, David. We missed out on an opportunity there. Um, <laughs> yeah. What a bunch of what a bunch of crooks. 
I mean, yeah. I just think it yeah. was perfect that it was for the wall, too. Of all the things, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants the wall. And so Bannon steals the money. Like, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's sort of perfect irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tell you what, that's the thing you can tell a hardcore Trump voter. If you said, hey, what do you think about the wall now? And the person says, you can wall off the virus, there's a good chance they're either a Democrat or um, undecided or could lean either way. And they're like, oh, still build the wall. That's the number one issue. You know they're that hardcore 35 39% uh, Trump supporter. Because, man, everybody's off the wall except that crowd. Um, and they'll probably never get off of it. You know, if, if they're on a ventilator, they still got to keep the, um, internationals out. You know, that's the, the number one thing. Well, thanks again to Chris Leon check in next week. Um, you know, formerly of the university of Oklahoma, Matthew Garris is going to come talk to us about Oklahoma politics and more. And until next week, it's been the kudzu vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has-